BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The January 6th committee that's been holding hearings all summer completed its first set of hearings last night in primetime. The latest focused on Donald Trump's behavior in the 187 minutes after he finished giving his rally speech and when he finally released a video telling rioters that he loved them but that they had to go home. As Mike Pence's Secret Service staff called their families to say goodbye in case they didn't make it out, Trump mostly watched Fox News, according to testimony at the hearings. But as the committee takes a month-long break to review new evidence, what has it accomplished and what can we expect to happen next? That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The most crucial context for Donald Trump's behavior on January 6th is that he was trying to hold on to power after he lost the election to Joe Biden. People around him, as previous January 6th committee hearings have shown, told him he'd lost, and the flurry of lawsuits they'd tossed at the system had failed, mostly laughed out of court. Their conspiracy theories foundered in any actual fact-based proceeding, but at the same time, Donald Trump had pressed on with his unfounded accusation that the election had been stolen. Millions of Americans believed him then and believe him now, including about 70 percent of Republicans in most polls, a situation that imperils our actual democracy. And no amount of debunking or fact checking has seemed to help bring Americans of different political stripes into the same reality. So I want to start this conversation with the task of the January 6th committee hearings. What might they do? More than a half dozen committee hearings in. What have they accomplished? Let me introduce our panel. We're joined this morning by Shan Wu, criminal defense attorney, CNN legal analyst, and former federal prosecutor who also served as counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno. Welcome, Shan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Also joined by Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter at Business Insider. Welcome, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. And Claire Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of our hometown, Mother Jones Magazine. Welcome, Claire. Thanks a lot for having me, Alexis. Claire, let's start with you. I mean, what might committee hearings like this do if all goes as planned? Well, first of all, let me just say that I was not expecting Liz Cheney to wrap yesterday's hearing by playing a Mother Jones scoop of leaked Steve Bannon video where before the election, he essentially laid out the plan for Trump to claim the election was stolen. That was not on my bingo card. Should we play um, that? Do you want to hear that cut? And then, before you go on, sure. Yeah, let's let's play. This is from October 2020, uh, which uh, first published at Mother Jones. Uh, Steve Bannon talking, uh, October 2020. Oh, okay. We we actually don't have that cut right now, um, but. Basically, Steve Bannon says, Clara, I, I'm sure you've heard it many times from, from your website. You've heard it. Uh, he says Trump's going to claim that the election was stolen. 
claim the election was stolen and and that essentially that there would be a wild kind of reaction from the base and that he'd be able to fire them up. And so, you know, what the hearings have showed in, in over these many proceedings is that there's so much more evidence now before the public to show exactly how plan Trump planned to contest the results, how when he failed, as you said, after court case after court case to find any purchase, he listened to really bizarre um, legal advice, and he summoned a mob to Washington to do what his lawyers couldn't do, keep him in power. And, you know, I, whether or not this penetrates the deep um, recesses of MAGA world, who's to say? I think we are beginning to see some movement in the polls amongst independents and so forth that are really perturbed by the details. Um, but, you know, that's that's a matter of many months to see how this lands with the public. Yeah. We do have that cut now, so let's just hear it just because it's it's important. And what Trump's going to do is declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs vote in May. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to turn himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. Also, also if, Trump is, if Trump is losing by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. Yeah. No, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. If Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter at Business Insider, you know, there had been so much good reporting by so many different outlets. So what did the what have the hearings brought us, you think, that hadn't been available in, in previous reporting? Oh, my gosh, so much. It's hard to yeah. know where to begin. Um, we could take 10 minutes talking about it. I think, yes, there have been some amazing, so much amazing reporting and books detailing the period around this time. I think some of the most visceral anecdotes regarding the Secret Service, the confrontations um, in the car with Trump going back to the White House, which we got more corroboration for yesterday, and that harrowing detail we learned last night about Secret Service agents fearing uh, for their lives on Pence's detail, trying to get him to a safe location. I think these are some of the things, sort of the in the moment, sort of you had to be there details that we're learning out of these hearings. And last night, you know, you mentioned a couple of the the crucial things. I mean, in particular, Mike Pence's uh, Secret Service agents and their their fears. Um, give us a couple other things from yesterday, your takeaways as you watched uh, of, of things that seem to, to really hit. Well, I think what's been really remarkable that we've gotten out of this committee investigation that haven't necessarily been in the articles or the books are all the footage and audio recordings, body camera footage, security camera footage from within the Capitol and outside as the writers were being sieged. Uh, receiving the Capitol. An image I thought was really striking was that footage they played of some of the members of Pence's detail uh, trying to stave off the rioters down on, I forget whether it was the first or second floor, but seeing those images and having that radio transmission of the officer saying, you know, they're 10, 5, 10 feet away from me. I think that's what really, really brings it home. And that's what this committee is able to to offer. Yeah. You know, uh, Matthew Pottinger, former deputy national security advisor, and Sarah Matthews, a former White House deputy press secretary, both testified. Each of them resigned on January 6th. Um, what did they bring to the committee and what did each of them say that was significant? Sorry, Grace, sticking with you. Oh, yeah. Well, I think uh, Pottinger 
he really touted his um, his commitment to the administration, which I think was interesting. He sort of used it as a career highlights reel, but still said, you know, when when all was said and done, he felt like it was damaging to the U.S.'s national security, which I thought was very, very interesting, that perspective of how does January 6th appear uh, to our allies and our adversaries. And then Sarah Matthews is another figure who, like Cassidy Hutchinson, is a lifelong Republican, still works in communications for Republicans to this day. And she sort of brought us in this moment by moment in the press room and these internal deliberations of how should Trump respond. He detailed fighting with arguing with some of her colleagues about how strong of a condemnation and a call to action is what she really argued for. And she sort of brought us through hour by hour how it played out in the press room, the continued refusal of Trump to act, which eventually led to her decision to resign, to say, I can no longer be a spokeswoman for this. So they both had really interesting perspectives. Shailen Wu, criminal defense attorney, um, the committee seemed to really be honing in on Trump's dereliction of duty, that it's just, you know, failure to do anything to, to stop the riots in those 187 minutes. Did they make their case? Oh, uh, unquestionably, they made their case about dereliction of duty. Uh, unfortunately, dereliction of duty would not be an applicable criminal charge for him. Um, but as part of making that case, that's really reserved for people actually in the military. And even though he's the commander in chief, the military code of justice wouldn't apply to him. But in making the case for his dereliction of duty, they also provided all the witness testimony, the witnesses, the evidence uh, that could constitute the basis uh, for other charges that could be brought against him. But I think the dereliction was very, very strong. It's one thing to say that he didn't do anything. It's another to put forth the people who were asking him to do things and his affirmative decision not to call anybody. Um, now, who he called, I think, is a very interesting question because you know that administration in terms of not keeping proper presidential and government records. I mean, just stunning that during that time, photographer couldn't be in there. There's no call logs. So I'm sure he was <laughs> talking to plenty of people, dialing uh, with the senators, and it'd be interesting to uh, know about those conversations. Yeah. So Claire Jeffrey, I mean, in almost any other context that I can imagine, the presentation of Donald Trump's behavior would, would just bounce him immediately out of politics. Um, does that seem like it is going to happen? Well, there have been so many instances where Trump's behavior should have bounced him out of politics. I mean, go all the way back to attacking Gold Star families mm-hmm. and before. Um, but in this case, I think it I would agree that on the way to sort of making the moral case for dereliction of duty, they're also establishing, I'm not a lawyer, but a pretty good case for the for the charge most likely to come against Trump, which is obstructing an act of Congress. Mm-hmm. And so yesterday, as in days previous, we just see more and more detail about how he clearly intended and wanted, and even once the Capitol was under, ta- under attack and people were chanting for Mike Pence to be hanged, He kept, through Giuliani, pressuring senators to delay the vote, to kick it back to state legislatures. He he really pulled out every single stop he could possibly think of to keep Congress from certifying an election in which he lost. And he's still unwilling to say it. We saw those dramatic outtakes of uh, the video reel he made the day after where he said, you know, I'm not going to say that the election is over. He still hasn't. (laughs) Yep. 
Let's uh, let's listen in to those outtakes, that uh, cut of uh, Donald Trump outtakes. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? That was at one of the dramatic moments from yesterday's January 6th hearing. We are here unpacking the political and legal implications. Joined by Claire Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter at Business Insider, and Shan Wu, criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst, as well as a former federal prosecutor. We would like to hear from you. What have your takeaways been from the January 6th committee? And I know there's probably not that many Trump Republicans in our listening audience, but if you are, has the January 6th committee changed your mind or perspective about who's responsible for the insurrection on January 6th at the Capitol? You could give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And you can always email forum at kqed.org. We got some uh, comments rolling in already. Wendy writes, Trump and his people have used the strategy of perception equals or becomes reality for years. Barr used it to set the frame for the Mueller report before we had a chance to read it for ourselves. By the time it was available, most people thought it was a nothing burger. Same with Bannon. He laid out the strategy out loud, as you heard it first on Mother Jones and then in the committee hearing last night. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about last night's January 6th committee hearing and unpacking the political and legal implications of the evidence that was presented. I'm joined by Shan Wu, criminal defense attorney, CNN legal analyst, Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter at Business Insider, and Clara Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of Mother Jones. You, Clara, there's a, a sense in which this committee has a bunch of different jobs or could have a bunch of different jobs. I mean, one maybe is to shore up democracy. One is to maybe make a, a some of the criminal case uh, so that the DOJ will bring charges. Some is to maybe keep Donald Trump from uh, being a most a powerful political force uh, in the United States. Of the different jobs that the committee sort of nominally has, what would you say they've done the best at? I do think that they... 
seen their their attempts to shore up democracy play out to have this hearing be very level-headed, uh, mostly in its presentation and its questioning of witnesses, um, does really matter. It, it at least makes some people feel who were in total despair about where we were going that there are people who want this government to work as intended for all of its flaws and that, but to have peaceful transfers of power, to not let lying and chicanery and disinformation rule the day. Um, I think it's also particularly maybe Liz Cheney's um, express intent to do what she can to also keep Donald Trump from being someone who could attain that level of power, at least officially. You know, he's going to be a power broker probably no matter what, but if she can keep him from being the most viable candidate, if it turns enough Republicans to a DeSantis or whomever, um, you know, I, I think that that is, that is one of her express aims and maybe that of the whole committee. Yeah. Grace Panetta, what do you think? What has the committee been most effective at in its uh, in its hearing so far? I think um, it's really been most effective at just getting out the pure unvarnished truth out to the American people, um, having a lot of discussions, of course, about prosecutions, criminal charges, future accountability. But I think at the end of the day, the most important is for people to know what happened, to understand how the then commander in chief, President Donald Trump, um, reacted to the insurrection, fueled the lies that led to the insurrection with all of this never before seen testimony, documents, footage. I think just getting that out there into the public domain um, above all else is the most key part. Yeah. And Shan Wu, how about on the question of setting up this criminal prosecution uh, or or at least hypothetical criminal prosecution? Where do you think they've where do you think we are in that process? I think what they've done a great job at doing is really uh, taking away the main defense Trump would have, which is that he lacked a criminal state of mind. He lacked criminal intent. That's the same issue that so many legal experts and commentators and probably <clears throat> the Justice Department has been struggling with is whether or not <clears throat> you can show whether he knew what he was doing was wrong and therefore had criminal intent. I think they've done a tremendous job of doing that. They've really eviscerated that. I mean, person after person, his own attorney general, <laughs> his own White House counsel telling him there's no fraud here. There's no basis for trying to overturn the election. And importantly, the evidence of him using people outside of the government to continue to push that. I mean, these people in the war room, Flynn, Eastman, Giuliani, these are Roger Stone, you know, these were not people working within the government and turning to them to push forward this attack on the election from a criminal standpoint certainly helps make <clears throat> the appearance of the seditious conspiracy. But I think the most important thing that's come out of this is that uh, I don't think anybody could hear this and believe that he really thought that there had been fraud in the election or that his actions were somehow justified as a government review or government taking action about what had happened wrongly because there's nothing wrong. Right. You know, Grace Panetta, it wasn't just Trump that sort of came under the, the microscope last night. The committee really seemed to single out Josh Hawley, the Missouri senator. Can you tell us a little bit about what the committee, how they dealt with, with him yesterday? 
yes, how the committee chooses to present clips of video footage speaks a thousand words. They had to go through what I can only imagine was 12, maybe more hours of security camera footage from the Capitol to get that two, four second clip of Josh Hawley literally running from his life out of the Senate chamber uh, down the stairs. And I think obviously the main juxtaposition they were making was him putting, showing um, a fist of support to the protesters earlier that day. But to me, I also think that they were showing that he wasn't just running from his fist of approval, but running from his own legal theories that he pushed. He was the first U.S. senator to say, um, on, I think on December 30th, you know, I'm going to object to the election. And that gave this whole movement and idea that the election could be overturned in Congress a lot of credibility. And so it's not just about symbolic measures, but about the legal theories that he himself embraced and pushed for his own political game. But then when it came down to it, he ran away and wouldn't fight for them when people believing, you know, his theories or similar theories attacked the Capitol. Yeah. You know, then, Clara, this morning, Holly tweeted an image of a coffee mug with a picture of him raising his fist. I mean, what, like, what do we even make of that kind of turn in, in the discourse? I mean, it just it just goes to show how the GOP has been um, kind of taken over by this ethos of uh, expletive deleted posting. You know, it's just this these kind of trollish behaviors. And the, the most important thing to them is to show that they're owning the libs. Um, there's no real policy agenda. There's culture wars abound, but there's no real policies to improve people's material lives. Um, you know, and I think Holly feels that his political fortunes, you know, probably rightfully, uh, depend on Trump's base, uh, whatever it has been and will become, and uh, you know he's he's gonna he's gonna go with them. You know he's also someone who was really put in you know aided greatly in his race by Peter Thiel, uh, who's now running two other senators, um, protective senators for office in Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, and so we also have a situation. In Josh Hawley, where we're looking at the influence of, you know, tech billionaires and their uh, attempts to really assert direct control over the government. Yeah. We're talking about last night's January 6th committee hearings, unpacking the implications. Joined by Claire Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter at Business Insider, and Shan Wu, criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst. Going to go to the phones and start uh, taking some calls we are interested in your takeaways from these uh, January 6th committee hearings and also just whether they've changed your mind or perspective about uh, what happened on that day and the weeks uh, leading up to it. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. Or you can always email your questions to forum at KQED. Org. Let's bring in our first caller, Chris from Berkeley. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Chris, can you hear us? Maybe not, Chris. All right, we will uh, put you back on hold and hope you come back. How about uh, Wanda in Oakland? Hi. Uh, I had heard that if he was indicted, he cannot run. And is that true? And why haven't they indicted him already? Mm-hmm. Uh, Shan Wu, I believe this is your uh, your your question. <laughs> uh, I'll take the easier one first, which is uh, he he can run if he's uh, in, indicted, because uh, you know, he, frankly, even if he was convicted, he might still be able to run. Um, the second question is, you know, the question of the uh, century here: Why hasn't he been 
indicted. And that goes to all the issues that people have been discussing, which is why hasn't the Justice Department moved faster? Have they been moving up until this point? There's reports that they were surprised by some of the testimonies, such as Cassidy Hutchinson's. If that's true, they have no one to blame but themselves because they could have been out there doing these interviews. So the bottom line as to why he has not been indicted yet is the Justice Department has not gotten to that point. They haven't done the work yet to feel that they are ready to indict. People often think that once evidence exists, and for indictment, it's really just probable cause, it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, then like a machine, the justice system turns out the indictment. That's completely untrue. Uh, everything is up to the discretion of the prosecutors. It's called prosecutorial discretion. So to exercise that discretion, Merrick Garland has one of the biggest challenges in the history of the department in terms of exercising that discretion. Uh, having been a judge now for most of his career, he's you know, no doubt approaching that in a very judicious, cautious manner, which may or may not be the best way to approach it. But that's the answer to why he hasn't been indicted yet. There looks like there's evidence out there, but they have to make that decision and exercise the discretion to do so. Yeah. Clara, Merrick Garland, kind of uh, a tragic figure in this in some ways. Um, talk to me more about where... If, do you have reporters trying to find out what's going on there? Like, I, I think it's just this big open question. Yeah, I mean, the the DOJ has been pretty remarkably locked down on on leaks as to what they're doing or not doing. Um, so I don't have any particular insight. You know, I do think that there's there's sort of two things happening. Maybe Merrick Garland is more cautious than other prosecutors would be. Maybe that's the right thing. Maybe it's the wrong thing. Um, I think what's also a kind of a factor in this, particularly on the left and particularly like, you know, left Twitter is just this sort of fueling itself at anger over America. Like basically everybody wants something to happen. They want a resolution. They want to see accountability and justice. And, and it's just incredibly frustrating after six years of dealing with Trump that there never seems to be any. Mm -hmm. There's so many cases against him. Which of them will land? Might not be the DOJ. You know, I think this this case in Georgia, where he's on tape. I mean, that the DOJ could obviously reference that as well. But you know, he's basically on tape threatening Georgia uh, elections officials to come up with the exact number of votes that he needs to to win the state. Um, so there are a lot of different things factoring in. I, I honestly don't know for myself where to sort of come down on Merrick Garland's um, approach. Yeah. Shan, there, this Georgia case is one that has come up a few times. Why is it that that one seems to be the case that is moving more quickly and that at least some legal observers seeing, see as more dangerous to Donald Trump? Because uh, Merrick Garland's not the prosecutor, uh, <laughs> tongue in cheek. <laughs> okay. um, I, I think it's moving ahead more quickly. Uh, one, because of what Clara just said, the evidence is so blatant and strong there. And I and many others have always felt that presented the greatest imminent danger to Trump. Um, it's also a smaller prosecution uh, bureaucracy there so that uh, she's able to move it forward without having to go through kind of like the massive bureaucracy at DOJ, which is also at the same time running literally hundreds of these prosecutions against the violent protesters, some of which would have really no direct link 
to Trump other than being inspired. So it, it's a much more manageable piece of criminal prosecution. And that's one of the main reasons that it's moving forward more quickly. Let's bring in another caller, Jennifer in Oakland. Welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I want to riff off of what you guys were talking about with the whole culture of owning the libs and the trolling behavior of the current GOP. Um, I feel like these hearings have been exclusively laser focused on Trump and largely because, you know, he's the star of Joe, but I only hinted at the others have been complicit, you know, those who asked for pardons and, of course, Josh Hawley, but I'm wondering what the implications of that are going to be long term if we just go after Trump um, and God, I don't even think we could say bring him down. But what about the wider culture that has kept him in place and kept him, you know, seemingly legitimate? How are we going to write the ship if that doesn't get addressed either by these hearings or by the DOJ? Yeah. Uh, Grace, how about you've been following these hearings really closely how should we think about the evidence that the committee has presented you know, against these sort of secondary and supporting players around Donald Trump? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good um, and insightful point. And I actually do think that the hearings have also revealed the complicity um, and the enabling of people in Trump's immediate circle, even though it may not be as attention grabbing as the material of Trump itself. I mean, back to this point about the DOJ, think about Jeffrey Clark, the high ranking DOJ official who Trump sort of put in um, and cultivated to help him with his efforts to overturn the election. The hearings focused on his role. And then he, you know, gets raided by (laughs) federal law enforcement uh, shortly after. I think about uh, John Eastman, all these people who asked for pardons um, around the the events of January 6th. And why do they why do they need pardons? So I do think that these hearings are kind of revealing that um, the other figures around, too. Yeah. You know, we have some comments coming in from GOP voters and writes in to say, you know, I held my nose and voted for Trump for various reasons. However, I don't consider myself a Trump supporter. I can't stand Trump's personality. I'm embarrassed by my fellow Republicans often. I've listened to most of the hearings unable to last night. His behavior has been inexcusable. Everyone should be aware of all of the evidence. Do we see evidence, uh, Claire Jeffrey, that people like that are peeling away? And if they are, where, where are they going? Yeah, I think we see some evidence that that Republicans who are kind of fence sitters, you know, maybe voted for him, maybe didn't, um, are, are moving more away from him and, and independence as well. You know, I think when it comes to what's going to come out of these hearings, we, we can't ignore that, uh, you know, if, if the uh, House of Representatives goes to the Republicans, um, this committee and all others will be under the uh, control of Kevin McCarthy um, and would certainly not be interested in probing um, the complicitness of Trump or or Eastman or Clark or Mark Meadows or any of the other um, kind of lackeys and uh, enablers. Um, so there, you know, there's a time limit um, to what amount will come out um, if if the Republicans win in the House. Um, will that then motivate uh, Democrats and others to turn out um, in part? You know, I think that that too is pretty up in the air right now. Yeah. Grace Bonetta as politics reporter, how, what's your read on that? 
Yeah, I think it, it's a little too soon to tell what kind of a dent the hearings will make uh, in Trump's support. I think what's most interesting is his support within the GOP itself. Um, and, you know, will maybe the hearings won't turn people within the Republican Party actively against Trump, but it may just be so much baggage and fatigue information overload that they might, you know, be thinking, I don't want to deal with this drama. I don't want to have this baggage. I want to move on for January from January 6th. And that could maybe hurt Trump's prospects of regaining the nomination again in 2024. Yeah. We're talking about last night's January 6th hearing, unpacking the political and legal implications of the evidence that's been presented so far. Joined by Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter at Business Insider, Shan Wu, a criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst, as well as a former federal prosecutor who served as counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno. Also joined by Claire Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of Mother Jones magazine. And we really do want to get your take on what has happened so far. This was kind of the end of these summer hearings. There are going to be more, apparently, uh, beginning in September. But this has been kind of the, the first tranche. Uh, what would you like to see government officials do with the information that's been gathered by the committee? And what questions do you have that we can answer legal or political about the impact of the January 6th committee? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Comments, of course, can go to forum at kqed.org, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or KQED Forum. Want to get to a comment before we go to the break. Kathy writes, last night I asked my 19-year-old son what he and his friends think about the January 6th hearings. My hope was that he'd say it had them fired up and motivated to get involved in protecting democracy for their generation. Instead, he said it has turned them all off to politics. To them, it seems like a bunch of power-hungry old people who don't care about the younger generation at all. I don't want our next generation to feel this way, and I'll do my part to continue to engage my son in these discussions. But their 19-year-old perspective is important to acknowledge. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll talk more about that when we come back from the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about last night's January 6th committee hearing with Claire Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter at Business Insider, and Shan Wu, a criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst. We have some legal questions for you, Shan, that I wanted to get to. One listener tweets, with the new revelations about Secret Service radio calls suggesting they thought they might face lethal violence protecting the vice president, 
Does this mean the missing texts are now potentially part of a cover-up? And maybe you can explain what missing texts they're referring to as well. Oh, sure. Um, I'd love to be able to explain what the missing texts are. I think some of the uh, gobbledygook coming out of the Secret Service uh, is trying to say that, as far as we can tell, there's nothing really missing. That's kind of what they're saying, which is kind of silly, because one, you don't know what's there until you know what's there. Two, it's utterly impossible that on this day, there wasn't a treasure trove of text messages going back and forth about what to do. And I thought that last night's uh, revelation, uh, you know, quite chilling that the detail was that worried about the safety at that point and fearing for their lives. I think that may also be a reason that the service doesn't want to produce those texts. Uh, they don't like the idea that if on the radio, people were literally saying goodbye to their families, you know, who knows what's been written in those texts. So I believe that the Homeland Security Inspector General either today or last night had indicated that they were going to conduct um, a criminal type review of whether there had been any cover-ups or things improperly deleted. And I think that this is something that Homeland Security really needs to get on top of. The Secret Service is under the jurisdiction of Homeland Security. Up until now, the OIG was just the Secret Service or Treasury OIG, I think. I'm not sure. But Homeland really needs to be looking at that uh, issue because the service uh, really now has a history of looking very troubled. Uh, there's this question of whether it's even been politicized. So I think it's yeah. really, really critical that we get to the bottom of that. I mean, not to mention a lot of the leaks uh, in the wake of Mark Meadows' uh, assistant testifying to things that were going on. Um, were you going to say something, Claire? Right. Yeah, I, I find this entire Secret Service thing incredibly perturbing. I mean, not only have they, you know, disappeared their text, but they disappeared presidential um, schedule details. Um, the fact that mm -hmm. Pence was apprehensive about getting in the car, is that because he feared his own detail or he feared, I mean, could there even be warring camps within the Secret Service of those uh, more loyal to Trump openly, which we've seen again and again? The fact that these agents who claim they were going to debunk uh, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony have now sought private defense counsel. They're entitled to counsel through through the Secret Service, but they've sought private defense counsel. And, you know, Chan may correct me, but um, this is really unprecedented, and it's it kind of reeks of some weird Praetorian Guard dynamics in the Secret Service that are really terrifying. That, that's exactly the word I was searching for. It really is very Praetorian Guard, and that's where the politicization of them is so dangerous, not only for democracy, but on a very practical level, you don't want politically motivated people making decisions about security, and you don't want it the other way around. <sighs> It's terrifying. Uh, Ed in Palo Alto, uh, welcome to the show. Um, hi. Um, I have actually a two-part question. One of them is, you read the New York Times and Washington Post, primarily New York Times, that there is a split for people who um, don't think um, Trump should be prosecuted, and they're apparently afraid of precedence because the Republicans went after the Clintons, made something out of nothing, uh, whether it was Bill Clinton or his wife. And uh, but but my question is, wouldn't this set a precedence where politicians can get away with anything? Mm. Uh, yeah. And just there are no laws that applies to them. 
There's also a document from DOJ that says presidents should be should not be uh, prosecuted, I believe. Mm. And I wanted to get some comments on that. I mean, isn't that ridiculous that we basically have two sets of laws, one for whites, one for blacks, and none for the politicians? Thank you for that uh, perspective, yeah. Ed. Do you want to, um, Shen? Do you want to comment on that memo that that came to light that was first referenced, and we can talk about the larger point? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the there have been uh, a series of memos that usually each AG puts out about so-called politically sensitive investigations. Obviously, anything involving Trump or his White House administration would be sensitive, and. Prior to William Barr being the attorney general, it mostly um, had talked about avoiding obvious interference and deliberately left somewhat vague, again, up to the discretion of the department. There's a requirement that you consult with the um, public integrity section, which is the one that usually handles political corruption issues. Um, What Attorney General Barr did, uh, obviously very deliberately, was to make it that he needed to be more in the loop to be consulted to give the approval of that. And ostensibly, it was to prevent something like what uh, Director Comey had done, um, which was to get ahead of Justice Department leadership. Um, But in effect, what it did was it gave Barr control over how to handle any politically sensitive investigations. So Merrick Garland, uh, apparently in May, issued his guidance about these and he basically reaffirmed the Barr memo, and it could have been a lot of reasons for that, um, but just as a matter of optics, I don't think that was a great idea. The reality, having worked as a counsel to the attorney general, is no highly sensitive investigation is going to go anyplace without the attorney general or the deputy attorney general knowing about mm-hmm. it. So I don't really feel he needed to kind of reaffirm that Barr memo that way. He could have retreated to earlier guidance, he could have given his own guidance. Now, that memo does not, in answer to that bigger question, prevent um, a former president from being prosecuted. There is, There has been an OLC, Office of Legal Counsel policy that you wouldn't indict the sitting president normally. There's a lot of concerns about what's happening with that. It's totally irrelevant to Trump. Yeah. Um, he's not a sitting president. So there'd be no actual legal or even DOJ policy bar of actually... Um, prosecuting Trump right now. And Claire, you know, on the precedent question, it seems like we know some things from other countries that have seen the rise of authoritarian movements uh, and and have tried to recover from them. I mean, what's your take on this sort of precedent question? I think it's a it's a super tricky terrain that we're in, obviously. Um, I mean, prosecuting a former president, I think, is justified legally and morally if you know, no one should be above the law. And in this case, it's not even like a Spiro Agnew type um, money and politics kind of political corruption. I mean, he's expressly trying to prevent the peaceful Mm -hmm. transfer of power. But, you know, at the same time, what we have seen, you know, I think what some fear uh, is that once you allow for the prosecution of former president, would each party do that back and forth to the end of time? Um, I think that is a fear, but I think the greater, more proximate fear is that um, the things that Trump has enabled, the laws and the mores and the customs that he has defiled, 
um, you know, are kind of in tatters and we need to rebuild. And one of the ways to rebuild that is to um, follow things to the end point of the law. And if he deserves to be prosecuted and they can make a prosecution, if they think that they have a good chance of conviction, um, you know, my feeling is that they have to go ahead with it. Uh, Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter, business insider, wanted to ask you, I mean, one of the ways that we could rebuild some of these institutions that have been damaged by by Trump's behavior is to actually pass laws that sort of shore up some of the weak points that were exploited during this uh, post-election period. Can you tell us a little more about the Electoral Count Act and, and other actions that might be going on in Congress to, to shore up the system? Yeah, so as the House uh, January 6th committee is continuing to hold its hearings sort of separately but parallel to that, a bipartisan group of senators uh, have been meeting since January on working out a bipartisan compromise on electoral reforms to how we elect um, presidents and how Congress counts the congressional uh, votes in a joint session of Congress for presidential elections that really came into focus on January 6th to just, first of all, modernize and sort of give a 21st century upgrade to those laws, many of which are from the 19th century, and to close off pathways for the subversion and sabotage of presidential elections, just like what Trump and his allies tried to do. So the bipartisan group has introduced their proposals, and the January 6th committee is also going to release their recommendations probably later this year, maybe in the fall. Um, and it'll be interesting to see which proposals move forward and if the House and Senate are able to kind of work together on these. Yeah. Thanks for that. Let's bring in another caller, Chris in Berkeley. Good morning to all of you. Uh, thank you for taking my call. There's one aspect of all of this that, you know, when we talk about this, those of us who are watching the hearings especially closely and are, you know, shocked time and time again by the, the new pieces of information that are all being woven into, like, the, the grand tapestry that is everything that led up to the event and the actual event. Something that I discovered, I would say, back in about 2018 and talking to my parents, I'm in my mid-40s, my parents in their late 70s, is that I discovered that they were existing in a completely different reality, one that was fed information only from essentially three sources, Fox News, One American News Network, and now Newsmax, the newest and, and apparently one of the most dishonest of the three. But my wonder is, is that as we all sit here going, oh, I can't believe like Americans aren't paying attention. And why isn't this why isn't this grabbing people? I, I know you've discussed it on forum. And I, I have no doubt that, that those of you on the panel today who are political reporters have touched on this. But I feel like I'm waiting for the moment when the rest of the media establishment and maybe this will never happen because of corporate interests that are involved in, say, like an NBC or a CBS. But when. Will the rest of the media finally turn on those three networks and, and call them for what they are? Misinformation, disinformation, these are fancy, pretty little Washington, D.C. words. They are lying. They lie to the American people on a daily, regular basis and have been doing so for years. And it seems to me that until that is finally, at long last, exposed and discussed across the board, we're never going to break free of this of this. 50-50 divide down the middle where the American people just cannot seem to agree with one another. And I found, as I, I, as I sadly discovered with my own parents, the reason why I wondered, why are we fighting so much these days? It's because they have a completely different uh, fount of information mm-hmm. that is largely incorrect and, and misguided. 
But until they get called out, none of this is going to change. I just heard Louis Gomert apparently yesterday or today. Well, let saying, me. Um, oh, hey, Chris. A tragedy. These these political prisoners of January sixth. Oh, sorry, Chris. Um, let let me just uh, throw this over to Clara, only because I know Clara. I mean, you've been thinking about this for a, a long time. Um, wh- are there answers to the questions and the problems that that Chris posed uh, about the the media environment, and in particular the role of, of Fox News and now you know its uh, imitators? So on the on the good news front, I think you are starting to see uh, other you know big networks, both you know CNN and MSNBC, and even to some extent the uh, traditional big three, call out Fox News, highlight the fact that it's not covering the hearings and why, highlight the facts of how its hosts um, are directly involved in the entire Stop the Steal movement. They fomented it relentlessly on their show um, and how they are kind of providing cover for Trump and his uh, big lie now. I, I think the, the real problem is that as, as Chris indicated, the right-wing media ecosystem is an entirely hermetically sealed bubble at this point. There's there's really no penetrating it. It's not, it's not even that if the New York Times wrote front page stories every day, um, of which it has done several uh, in the last few months, noting uh, Fox's role in all of this, that that would change the minds of people trapped within that media ecosystem. Um, so there are possible legislative remedies. We could you know, go back to uh, um, the sort of provisions of equal time that, that prevented so much opinion um, being kind of uh, put up on airwaves without any um, without any uh, counterbalancing effects, um, but it's it's a real it's a real problem. It's a real problem that was uh, initiated by the Murdochs that they have run successfully in other countries, the UK and Australia most notably, um, and this is a worldwide problem of disinformation and asymmetrical information warfare. Yeah, you know one of the characters that seems like perhaps she could break through is uh, Liz Cheney. And I I wanted to just play a cut from sort of her closing statement uh, from the hearings yesterday. Donald Trump knows that millions of Americans who supported him would stand up and defend our nation were it threatened. They would put their lives and their freedom at stake to protect her. And he is preying on their patriotism. He is preying on their sense of justice. And on January 6th, Donald Trump turned their love of country into a weapon against our capital and our Constitution. You know, we have a listener who wrote in to say, I've been totally spellbound by the hearings. Right this moment, two things stand out to me. Cheney is a rock star in my book, and the irony of this is I consider her father and George Bush war criminals. Two, these hearings are one of the best contemporary examples of a civics lesson on the working of our federal system I've ever seen. And if I were a teacher of American history or history generally, I'd be drooling over these events uh, for the next few years. Grace Panetta, I mean, Liz Cheney becoming... uh, a hero for, you know, forum listeners, for people in the Bay Area. Is she having that effect on Republicans in other parts of the country? 
Well, it's hard to say what effect she's, you know, having on Republicans elsewhere. I think it might take some time for us to kind of see, uh, see if these hearings do have an effect. But her evolution has just been really, really fascinating. And I think, you know, the House of Representatives operates on this two-year cycle where it's all about raising money, running for re-election, political grandstanding, and she's totally eschewed that. She, you know, she's probably going to lose her primary uh, to a Trump-backed challenger next month, but her work is sort of speaking more broadly to history, to what the Constitution means, what it means to be patriotic and stand up for the rule of law. And to your question, She's a super unique figure in that sense, especially being a Cheney. And that is a big question. You know, can she can she be a figure that, you know, moves, creates movement within the GOP? Yeah. Steve, uh, Marsha writes, on the plus side for me, I've acquired some respect and even empathy for some of the Republicans testifying or leading the inquiries. I did experience dedication to our democracy slash republic. However, I'm stymied, dumbfounded that maybe each or all of them work for, backed, voted for, otherwise supported, and enabled Donald Trump to get into and stay in power. How do otherwise intelligent and seemingly dedicated persons back someone known to be corrupt, deceitful, a grifter, tax dodger, totally self-absorbed, fill in the rest of the blanks? We have been talking about last night's January 6th hearing and unpacking its political and legal implications. Thank you so much to our guests. Claire Jeffrey, editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, thank you. Thank you, Alexis. Shan Wu, criminal defense attorney, CNN, legal analyst, and a former federal prosecutor. Thanks, Shan. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter at Business Insider. Thank you, Alexis. This hour of forum has been produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, Jennifer Ng, and Cesar Saldana. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer, Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, Chris Hopp, and Christopher Beal. Our interns are Policy Kelly Campos and Lulu Ralda. Susan Davis is our senior producer. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thank you so much for all of your calls and comments. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Thank you. 
you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.